All right, so I have Anya on the line, and um, good evening, Anya. Good evening. I have a couple questions about feminism in education, and I'd just like to ask, what is your background? Where, where are you coming to this conversation from? Oh, my, I, my background is pretty heavily steeped in early childhood. That's really the area of education that I've spent all of my time. About 20 years now, I've been in classrooms, and I spent some time doing research on an early literacy grant, and now in the past couple of years, I've been doing consulting. So, yeah, I've kind of seen the run of many, many different kinds of centers and different kinds of environments. I also have taught early childhood classes at a community college, and I have a master's in early childhood special ed. So that's that piece. And then in terms of feminism, I've been mostly self-taught, I guess, as many of us are. And that's mostly through reading and consciousness-raising groups and talking to feminist elders. And I've really noticed over the past few years that there does not seem to be discussion happening in early childhood about feminism, which, which seems so strange to me because the field is, you know, 98% female. And there has been a lot of work done over the past decade or so around anti-bias education in early childhood, certainly anti-racial bias, mostly that, but also other kinds as well, and a lot of focus on developing curriculum around that. But there really seems like there's been this silence around sexism and any kind of feminist curriculum in early childhood. So I am hoping to start a conversation about that since it seems like a really important issue. I think a lot of modern feminists would also agree, but it, it's not something that we talk about. You're right. And do you think that the lack of representation in classrooms of men has anything to do about that? Because most teachers, especially childhood educators, are women. So what kind of, you know, what kind of effect do you think that has on this entire conversation of feminism as a lifelong thing? Yeah, I think it's really a multi-layered issue as to why we haven't really seen a strong conversation or hardly any conversation about feminism in early childhood. Yeah, about 98% of teachers or anyone involved in early childhood are female, and I think this is in large part because of money and status, because the pay is so incredibly low. I mean, everyone knows that teacher salaries are low at public schools. That's sort of a conversation that's been happening for a while. Nationally, the average preschool teacher salary is about half of what a kindergarten teacher makes. So there are a lot of early childhood teachers that qualify for food stamps and are living well below the poverty line. So the pay is extremely low. I think that is not a coincidence that it's a field so hugely dominated by women. There are hardly any education requirements. I know that does vary from state to state, and I am in North Carolina, so that's kind of where my expertise lies with this. But to be a... Um, employed at a licensed center in North Carolina as an early childhood teacher, you need a high school diploma or a GED and to be over 18, and that's it. So there's not any sort of education requirement, really. I mean, there are requirements for higher quality centers, but as far as just pure licensing goes, that's it. One reason that the conversation hasn't been happening about feminism is because as compared to public school teachers, early childhood teachers are making a lot less money, and the job is I wouldn't argue harder, but at least as hard, and most early childhood teachers don't get summers or holidays off. You might get some time around Christmas or Thanksgiving, but there's not the public school calendar that you get time off. And there's not also the emphasis on and the opportunity for professional development the way that there is for public school teachers that are required to have that for older kids. There's very
very little requirement for professional development for early childhood. So basically you have this very poor, very exhausted workforce that doesn't have a lot of education, doesn't really know a lot about advocacy or what they could do to kind of improve their collective situation, and they're just trying to get by. There's not really a lot of room or energy or access to things like considering these kind of higher-level issues, such as how to implement an anti-bias curriculum in the classroom. They're literally just trying to make sure nobody goes to the hospital (laughs) from day to day. And I do think that has a lot to do with the field being so predominantly female. Um, I mean, traditionally, all the caregiving-type fields are predominantly female. It has not attracted men, I think, in large part because of the very, very low salaries and also because there's this, like, sort of ick factor that a lot of people feel about men working with really young children that kind of comes out of this sense that, well, a realistic sense that so many children, especially girls but boys too, are victims of sexual abuse and that the vast majority of perpetrators are men. So there is this sense that, like, maybe a man who wants to go into the field has not good designs or intentions about that. And then there's also this sense that it's not a manly thing to do. Caregiving, particularly because it's looked at as caregiving more than education, is not manly. It somehow reduces a man's status to be in a position like that of, you know, changing diapers and just doing basic, you know, infant care and things like that. Interestingly, when you go to conferences, I've noticed this when I go to state and regional conferences, Despite the field being, you know, all these women and the entire, you know, ballrooms full of women at these conferences doing networking and professional development, the keynote speakers are very often men, way more often than they're women, which is really interesting to me. And the few men that you do see in the field, you know, teachers often get promoted very quickly to be administrators and are treated with this sort of really interesting almost fawning adoration and respect that he must be this amazing guy because he's willing to work with young children, whereas women who are doing the exact same thing don't accrue that sort of respect and attitude from their coworkers or from the people around them. So there's this resistance to have men in the field to begin with, but then once they're there, there's this huge status and adoration that accrues differently than it does for women in the field. Well, I mean, if they are good at what they do, if they're good educators, I guess it's okay, but but you're right, and we do need to talk about this, and I'm glad that you do bring it up. I find it interesting, though, that possibility of men going into this field with uh, bad intentions, you know, that does happen. We do have men in other fields in which they are responsible for small children that don't have that kind of distrust, you know, like sports coaches or pastors and and fathers even. I mean, fathers are responsible for small children. So why do you think there's this difference in the classroom? I would argue that fathers still have less responsibility for children than their mothers typically do. I mean, of course, not always, but typically. And I think the disconnect in the classroom comes to a couple of things. I mean, coaches and people in religious situations, those men would still have less time. It's not usually the only thing they do. As far as I can tell, a lot of times sports coaches and little league teams, things like that, that's sort of a side gig for a lot of people. And youth pastors, that's sort of often one thing they do among other things. So to just sort of devote one's entire livelihood to early childhood, it's more intense. And I find that usually a lot of women who go into the field, some women of course choose it very consciously because they love small children or that's where their passion is or the education piece is really fascinating to them or whatever. But a whole lot of women that you hear from, that I've heard from in the field, 
tend to get into it because they don't have many options, they don't have a lot of education, they have young children of their own, and they need a job. And you can always get hired in early childhood, at least in North Carolina, you can always get hired. So I've heard so many women say, like, well, I had this baby, and I wanted to, you know, it was nice to be able to be close to her, so I, you know, I put her at the center, and then I got a job there because I needed people. And then some folks stay for a very long time and never leave, um, and some just it's a temporary thing while the kid is in care. But I think men are less likely to have that kind of scenario where they just really need a job and it makes sense to them in practical ways to be working wherever their kid is because maybe they don't have reliable transportation or it's too far to drive from one thing to another or whatever. And then I think there is this idea that taking care of children is women's work. And because early childhood, sadly to me, is not looked at as education generally so much as just caregiving, babysitting, whatever euphemism you want, daycare, it's looked at as just, well, raising children is what women do, so why don't they do it in a professional capacity? And that's part of, I think, why the salaries remain so low, too, because it's not looked at as something that has just a great deal of cultural value, which is so interesting to me because people talk about, in the field, there's this thing that's happening right now, well, it's been going on for a while, that's basically this debate about whether we need to require more education for early childhood teachers or not. Some folks definitely are on the side of, yes, of course, people need this basic education about child development and curriculum and pedagogy and these pieces that seem really essential and certainly are considered essential in teaching anybody else besides tiny children that everyone would understand that you need this information, you need this background. But even a lot of people in the field, these women in the field, keep insisting that if we make these education requirements, it will sort of cull a lot of people who have been doing this forever and won't be able to get two-year degrees or four-year degrees because of capacity or access. Those are important issues to look at, why there is such a struggle to get access to education and professional development. And there's also an understanding that a lot of people in the field really probably wouldn't be able to get through a four-year degree and that that's okay, this perspective says, because they just love babies. They just love children. And there seems like there's this strange dualistic sort of thinking about this that either you have the education or you love children. And those two things can't be mutually compatible for some reason, which I do not believe is true at all, but that's sort of the narrative that's come up. And I talked to somebody a while back who was a nurse, who's been a nurse for many, many years, and said that at one point a long time ago in her field there was a similar kind of thing, like are we going to professionalize and require education and get paid commensurate with that, or are we just going to kind of keep being on the sidelines? And that's when, according to this nurse, things kind of split off, and then you could develop pathways towards an RN versus a CNA or something like that. So what level of caregiving is the person acquiring? What sort of capacity do they have to finish the school parts of it? And there was an acknowledgement that there was a need for a higher level of education and a more rigorous line of work, and also a need for just basic kind of caretaking. So I suspect that early childhood is, is heading towards that sort of divide, that there might end up being multiple pathways. And I think with a more expansion of early childhood, preschool in particular, the four-year-old year, into the public school realm, that's where that's kind of going, that probably teachers who are employed in public school systems already are required to have more education than just private licensed centers and that it's probably going to keep going in that direction where the more sort of institutionalized the field gets, the more education that's going to be required, and 
if there are at some point in the future still private independent centers, they will probably still not require the same level of education, and they will probably still pay less and not have benefits and the same kind of thing that happens now on a more widespread basis. You just touched on so many ideas that are pertinent to this conversation. Just one of them is the funding for schools and the funding for this education for these teachers. Where is that funding coming from? When I was in school, I learned that most of it's from property taxes, which mm -hmm. help keep poor communities poor and which help keep this maybe not so great education still not so great. You know, it's, it's very hard to improve an education when you don't have that much funding. Right. Early childhood is ridiculously expensive. I mean, quality care runs easily eight nine $900 a month in Buncombe County, where I live. And the slots that are available for programs like Head Start and NC Pre-K, which are, are funded, government-funded programs, are they're limited slots. Not everybody can have one that wants one or that even would qualify for one. And it doesn't cover the whole cost of care, which makes it hard for providers. And it also makes it hard for parents because, for example, Head Start, which is a great program, I love it, but Head Start and Early Head Start run 8 o'clock in the morning to 2.30 in the afternoon. So this is obviously not sufficient care for people who are working full-time. So parents have to also then come up with wraparound care money. There's been a huge issue in Buncombe County with not having enough slots, not having enough access to care, and then even for folks that do have access to subsidy and that can get slots for their children that are partially or mostly subsidized by government money, they often don't have transportation. Public schools, when you get to elementary school, they have school buses. They don't have that for early childhood. So there's a question of how do you even physically get a child there? And then the question of what to do in the afternoons if you're working. And yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a complicated system. And a lot of it does have to do with lack of access because it's not been institutionalized in the way that public school has. So a lot of families are sort of floundering. I know that's getting a little bit far afield from the issue of feminism with it, but I think it is relevant because, again, of course, particularly poor single mothers are the hardest hit in this case. I'd like to bring the scope a little further out because all of this does have to do with the patriarchal scheme of, you know, you said this earlier, like women are naturally caregivers, so they're going to be natural early childhood educators. And this role that women are placed into, the sex role of caring for other people and nurturing and being mothers, how, how do you think that plays out within the family itself and specifically the nuclear family? Or I guess, I mean, we could bring in organized religion as well. I am not a big proponent of the nuclear family. That seems like a system that doesn't work on a large scale for a lot of people. And there's lots of historical evidence and, and non-Western cultures that do things differently, where it seems like there's potential to work better. The nuclear family, by nature, it's a hierarchical structure, and it's designed and maintained to keep the power in the hands of men, so that it keeps women in this subservient position, basically. And it's interesting that even though most women work now, most women who are married work at this point, but are still in this sort of subservient position and make less money and are still in charge of the vast majority of childcare and housework and you know, the emotional labor that we've been hearing about a little bit finally in mainstream media is finally starting to talk about that as something that falls almost entirely to women. And I think the other thing about the nuclear family that doesn't really work for so many is that it's so isolating. And I think that's similar with organized religion too, actually, that children model what they see and 
whether or not a child's actual existing family structure is similar to the ideal that is shown, you know, in movies and television and books and whatever, that nuclear family structure, that's sort of the ideal that gets imprinted. And families that don't maintain that structure often are put in a position of feeling like they're failing, you know, if single mothers, and somehow that's like a failure if you're not managing to maintain this ideal structure. And it's just very isolating because there's not an extended network for adults or for children. I mean, for adults, if you're in this sort of heterosexually structured marriage, you're supposed to get all your emotional needs met by this one person forever, which is ridiculous, of course. And um, and for children, you're supposed to get your, all of your needs met by this one or maybe two people, depending on the structure of your parents. And that doesn't, obviously that system fails in so many ways for so many people all the time. And I think it's also something that's perpetuated with organized religion, with a system of, you know, insiders and outsiders and not being able to look outside this very small, closed system for any reflection of yourself or emotional support or practical support in many cases, you know, actual material, you know, financial and that kind of support. So, yeah, I think children see this paradigm of the nuclear family and understand because even if they can't express it understand that it's a hierarchical system they understand who has power and they understand how that power plays out you can see it in their play and and how they talk about things and that's what they're going to replicate because if that's all they see without a structure for questioning it or for reconsidering it that's what's going to keep happening i think we would agree that feminism will benefit children like if they can grasp these ideas then they can replicate feminists ideals but yeah. how would you explain it to a five-year-old how would how would you explain feminism to a five-year-old <laughs> yeah i think people tend to underestimate five-year-olds and young children in general and it is a little bit tricky because it's not like they're going to really understand a conceptual model of systemic oppression <laughs> but that's also not what you need them to do young children and four and five-year-olds in particular have a real strong sense of fairness, typically. That's something that you'll hear constantly. It's real annoying. They don't have a lot of capacity for gray area in their thinking. Everything is right or wrong and black and white. So constantly, you know, if you're in a room full of preschoolers for any length of time, you start hearing this constant, it's not fair, or he got more, or she got this one, and, you know. So they have very clear ideas about that and why everything should be fair. And, again, my experience is in classrooms, so this is way more focused on my thinking and, and work is more focused on that environment than a parent-child kind of relationship where you might need to address things differently. But in a classroom environment, the opportunities present themselves all the time because it is an age where they're very focused on gender differences. They're figuring out how they are supposed to act and how they are basically performing the gender that they are given, and they're trying to enforce that. So. Yeah, you can't even imagine how many debates I've had with small children about the question of pink or purple being girl colors and why boys can't like those colors and why they certainly can't use them or wear them or anything. So I think the starting point is kind of finding them where they are because these things come up. They come up all the time with who can play with who, who can play with what toys, who can like what things. Five-year-olds are huge policers of who can like what, which is real tedious, but that's how it goes. So you start out with like, well... You know, just start questioning it. You're basically teaching them critical thinking skills, which they're going to need anyway, so you might as well point it at feminism. And you're teaching them to interrogate their own assumptions and their own thoughts. So you say, oh, I heard you telling so-and-so, your friend, that pink is for girls. Why do you think that? 
And a lot of times, you know, real young children, they can't articulate why they think something. It's there. It's in the air. It's pervasive. It's in the culture. They don't know how to say, well, I've been watching a lot of television, and I see that girls usually are dressed in pink on television, so that's why I think it's a girl color. Like, they don't, they can't do that. So you start asking them questions. You know, well, do you see girls wearing pink? Do you see boys wearing pink? Why do you think that might be? What colors do you like? And then start going into preferences. One thing that I found that's kind of funny is that young children seem to have an improbable amount of respect for food preferences, of all things. They, they understand that food is something we all need and that we all feel differently about it. And it's one thing that even the most sort of conformist-oriented children, I've never seen bullying around food preferences or any sort of, like, persuasive conversation. Maybe others have, but that's not something I've ever seen. So you, and they, they're willing to accept that, you know, so-and-so likes peaches and so-and-so doesn't, and that's okay, and we can all, you know, move on with our lives. So I've often had some luck making an, an equivalency there. Like, okay, so, you know, you like peaches, and he doesn't like peaches. So is it okay for him to also like pink, even if you don't like pink? Or drawing those sorts of parallels. I use a lot of comparisons with the natural world, because that seems to work for children, because it's something that's not yet taken over in their heads by this patriarchal gendered system. So you could ask them, you know, are animals, are theirs for boys or for girls? Can girls like lions or can just boys like lions? And just sort of get them to start interrogate that thinking. What if there was a little girl who hated pink? Would it be fair to make her wear that because it's a girl color? Would she have to wear that? What if there was a boy that liked pink? Would it be fair that he couldn't do that because it's a girl color? So, yeah, you start just really questioning where their assumptions are coming from. And they're not going to be able to address yet or identify where they're coming from, but it's just a matter of getting them to start thinking about it. Most of these examples are about boys because in early childhood years, boys are typically the bigger enforcers of these gender roles and gender stereotypes. A lot of boys have a lot of anxiety about being seen as liking or doing or sympathizing with anything that's a girl thing. Girls typically, not always, but are typically more free to like boy things until adolescence where everything changes again. And it's also a little bit easier to talk with girls about feminism because, of course, girls can get on board with this sort of righteous, intuitive understanding that they can do whatever they want and they can play with whatever they want and they can grow up to be whatever they want. I have often found that boys are the enforcers on this stuff, so it's important to address it with them too. And it's also true that girls tend to be allowed more leeway in expressing interest in boy things than boys are allowed to express interest in girl things. So I think that is a piece of it, too, that often boys come in with this sense of having been told by their fathers. They have a much clearer sense that, like, oh, you can't be doing that. That's a girl thing. Whereas girls have, there's a little bit, again, before adolescence, in early childhood world, there's a little bit more leeway for them to kind of play across that aisle. These concepts seem so overarching. They seem so complex. So are there any activities that teachers can use to actually show and have their students show themselves what their underlying prejudices or, or biases are? I think there are, and I know there's some folks have done some good work with that around racial bias, which shows up in toddlers even, preference for their own race. For early childhood teachers, you've kind of got to know your crowd, and you have to respond to the particular needs in, in the moment with children. And I think it's effective to discuss these things in a formal way, and I think it's even as effective or more effective to do it kind of as it comes up. So I think embedding these kinds of things in a classroom routine, 
so that you have lots of books available that show specifically non-gender stereotyped activities. You have pictures that show that and that you counteract it whenever it comes up. I think a lot of times we are all likely to kind of give things a free pass unless it's really egregious. So you kind of just let things go. Using unconscious sexist language is, is something I see all the time in classrooms, like all the time. So building in a way to avoid that into your daily routine so that, you know, your little girls come into the room and you don't immediately comment on what they're wearing. You avoid that entirely. You focus on something else. Research has shown, and my own observations have definitely backed up, that in our conversations with young children, so much more of talking to little girls is based on their appearance, what they're wearing, what their hair's like, what they look like. And so much of the conversation with little boys is about what they're doing. So making a really conscious shift to avoid talking about physical appearance, avoiding using words that are male-specific as neutral. I mean, I was it always struck me that in so many years of early childhood, especially in this one classroom I had for many years with twos and threes, that had these really big, beautiful windows that looked out onto the playground. And in all of these years in this classroom, I never saw, I never overheard a teacher or a parent or volunteer or anybody ever see a female squirrel. All the squirrels they ever saw were always male. It was like, oh, look what he's doing. Look at that squirrel. Look at him go. And really, y'all? I mean, really? Why? Why can't any of them ever be female? So looking at language, things like that, I think it's helpful to have specific activities and conversations. And also my own knowledge and, you know, the research supports how children actually develop and how they learn best is this embedded approach that's not just we talk about this at circle time once a week, but that we actually really implement practices that are bolstering the spirit of belonging and equity in classrooms and that try to counteract the influences that the larger culture is having. And I would also say, for what it's worth, trying to share this information with parents because so many things happen that's out of teacher control. And, of course, not all parents are going to be completely on board, but sharing the anti-bias work that you're doing and trying to get the ones that are going to be willing to do this to also implement the same kinds of things at home, the same ways of talking about people, talking about themselves. Teachers, we've all come up in the same, you know, we've all been socialized into the same environment that the children are now in. So we have to kind of examine our own biases and take a look at how we're actually, how we're actually interacting with children instead of how we think we might be interacting. When, when I was studying to be a teacher, I would comment on my female students' appearances, what they were wearing, how their hair was done that day. And it was always like compliments. It was always, yeah. oh, you look nice today. Oh, new shoes, they look fun or whatever. And I did try to switch it around. I, I did try a couple times to not say anything about how they looked or what they were wearing. And it was so difficult. It was just so hard to do. Yeah, it is. It's amazing how women are socialized and how we propagate and continue that socialization with our female students and how we don't treat the boys in the same way. Yeah. I would say the vast majority of teachers mean it to be positive. You know, you want to bolster their self-esteem so you tell them they're pretty or, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that in theory. It's just that that seems to be so much of the conversation with little girls 
that it's true, like what you're saying, when you try to avoid it, it's really hard. Like, what else do I talk to them about, you know, especially because you don't know very well. Do you think that educators have a responsibility to their students to try to cut this down? Because students usually spend most of their lives in school with teachers. Right. And I think absolutely it's an important responsibility for teachers to try to address their own biases and then be able to, you know, identify what's happening and then be able to shift it with their their children. I mean, especially, again, especially early childhood, this is where this stuff is formed. You know, they're learning language. They're learning the ways in which their narrative in their heads is going to go on their entire lives about themselves and about the world. They're learning basic trust, hopefully. I know the school day in elementary school is limited somewhat, but, I mean, plenty of kids in early childhood spend upwards of 10 hours a day in care. They see their teachers way more than they see their parents. So there's a huge influence on them. I think it's really hard because you have this workforce that's not, by and large, terribly well-educated, and there's not resources provided for them to, you know, go to trainings and have professional development opportunities and really look into some of these things. They're just trying to get by. And I would also say that the work that's been done about anti-racial bias in the preschool classrooms over the past decade or so has really shown that teachers have a hunger for the information. They don't want to be doing the wrong thing. You know, they want to be helping children and creating more equitable environments. So I think some of it is just being able to provide that information in really accessible ways and creating centers that support that intention all along. Talking about clothing and how little girls look, I think part of that is that when you when you have older kids, there's sort of more topics to connect with them about in a way. You know, a 10-year-old girl that you're meeting for the first time as a teacher might start talking about all sorts of things, about her interests and what she's doing after school and her family and whatever. But you encounter an infant or a toddler, they're not going to be able to do that. Basically, the one thing you know about this child right out of the gate is that she's female. So that becomes this major identifying point for people and teachers and parents and just ordinary human beings encountering a baby. The one thing they know is this child's sex based on clothing, of course, which is a whole other topic, but they can identify that. So based on that, we make these, this huge library of assumptions about this child's character and what she's doing and how we interpret her behavior and how we interpret sounds she makes. And all of this comes from this one known fact because she can't say, hey, actually, I'm going to be super into soccer in five years. All we have is that she's wearing a pink onesie, so we go with that. I don't think it's ill-intentioned, typically. Usually, I would say it's not ill-intentioned. It's just that we, we're trying to connect, and we're using the tools that we have if, if we haven't really considered what the end result of those tools is. Do you think that there's a correlation between how young girls are supposed to dress or how their parents often dress them and how they're supposed to act. Yes, definitely I do. I think that it's really interesting if you ever just have some spare time and want to take a stroll through, like, the children's clothing department at Target or something. It's fascinating to really look at this because there are very strict rules that designers seem to be following when it comes to clothing for young children, and there is this sort of thread of gender neutrality, which is sort of a myth, but... That can be a thing for babies, for infants, but it stops pretty quickly after we get through the onesie phase where you're just, I think, assuming that they're going to throw up on them five times a day, so there's no point in making it really cute. Once you get past that, clothing is so strictly gendered. One thing that I've seen that 
I've noticed that I think is really important to pay attention to around girls' clothing is that it is not designed or intended for movement. It is not designed for exploration or gross motor play or adventure. If you look at your typical little boy clothing, no matter what's on it, no matter what color, whatever, it's stuff that, generally speaking, covers the body in appropriate ways and can be moved in easily. And when you look at little girl clothing, it is not that at all. I mean, there's so many times I have been in classrooms where teachers are constantly reminding little girls to sit like a lady or close your legs because they're wearing skirts and they're plopped all over the place. And so there's the shaming involved with it right from the very beginning. Like, no one wants to see all that. Sit right. And boys don't ever have to think about that. And then girls often come with accessories with, you know, hair bows and barrettes and things that they need to keep track of and they're uncomfortable so they fall out and they don't really keep their hair back so they have to think about where their hair is. They wear these fancy ridiculous shoes, princess shoes, because if you call it a princess shoe, every little girl's going to want it. But they can't run in them, they can't climb. They're basically clothing that is designed to make the child look attractive in an adult heteronormative way. So she's supposed to look sweet, cute, helpless, young, similar corollaries if you think about it to adult women clothing. It is not functional clothing in the way that clothing for boys is. There's been studies, it's actually really interesting if you look at it, there's studies that clothing for children of the same ages, and there's not really a lot of size differential until puberty, clothing for five-year-olds, the clothing that's intended for boys almost always has longer sleeves and longer, longer length. They're all bigger. Clothing for little girls is smaller, so they're already being socialized into this idea that showing your body, showing more of your body, is something that's positive, that's cute, that's appreciated, that they're supposed to be doing. And it doesn't matter if it's comfortable. It doesn't matter if you're cold. It doesn't matter if you can't move or play in it. That's what you're supposed to be doing. So girls end up spending all this time and energy. You know, if you think about little three-year-old girl, it's not an unthinking thing for her to figure out how to run around in flip-flops. That's not something she automatically knows how to do. It's something that energy has to go towards. And energy has to go towards figuring out how to keep her hair out of her face or keep her hair bows in or to keep track of her jewelry, if that's the case. You know, all these things require energy and focus that little boys just don't have to deal with. It's just not a thing for them. And all of this is in the interest of looking a certain way to appeal to the people that they're being told implicitly that they need to appeal to. I would say I think it's very intentional, really, that this is a setup for young girls, little tiny baby girls, that they're not going to object to the sorts of things that they are going to be expected to wear as they get older and older. So adult women wear this ridiculous, uncomfortable, impractical, non-functional clothing, and that they're basically socialized into it from toddlerhood, that they're not expecting clothes to be something that they just put on and forget about, that this is a conscious thing they have to be thinking about all the time. I assume that boys are not impacted in the same way, or are they? In terms of clothes? Well, in terms of clothing and also the way that playtime is enacted by children, the way that they're encouraged to do things. Boys can climb trees. Girls usually can't if they're wearing princess shoes. So how are boys impacted in this way by this system? Well, I think boys are definitely impacted badly by this, too. I mean, my primary concern, of course, is girls being feminist as I am. But certainly the socialization for boys is not... I wouldn't say it's healthy either. I mean, basically, boys from infancy onwards, they're held less, they're cuddled less, they're crying and distress behaviors responded to less quickly. They're encouraged to do a lot of more independent behavior much earlier. 
they're basically encouraged to kind of strike out on their own and explore, even as babies and toddlers, in ways that girls are not. The expectation for girls is that they're going to be protected, they're going to stay close to adults, they're going to be relational in those ways. And boys are allowed much more free reign, but also not necessarily encouraged to develop those kinds of relationships with caregivers with the same intensity that girls are. I was telling a friend of mine just the other day, I was in a classroom that a couple of years ago I had been a teacher there, and I had had this little boy who was very, you know, what they would call a stereotypical boy, you know, very loud, very active, two years old, and I didn't have a particular connection with this kid. I was only in the room a couple of months, and yeah, he was fine, but not someone I especially connected with, and then I was in this room the other day doing an observation, and I was looking at this little girl, and I said, hey, that's so-and-so's sister, isn't it? And they said, oh, yeah, she's just like him. She is just exactly like him. And I was laughing because, you know, remembering this little boy, and I was like, oh, okay, you know, I'll watch out for that. And then I was only there for a couple of hours, but within that time, she had brought me several books, sat in my lap, and was leaning up against my leg and cuddling. And it's like, okay, that's really interesting that maybe they are very similar in a lot of ways, certainly looked like him, also loud, demonstrably loud, but also had this sort of relational expectation in her behavior that her brother never seemed to have. And, of course, some things are, you know, individual differences. Of course, there's always that piece. But I think so much of this is socialization. I saw this, it was quite a while ago, but I saw this study once where the researchers put these little babies, they're close to a year old, about nine months to a year, and they put a sheet of plexiglass, like a barrier between them and their parents, their mothers, and they, you know, were looking at it by sex to see what the little boys would do and what the little girls would do. And generally speaking, on average, the boys would look at it and try to figure it out and then start attacking it, like start trying to kick it and hit it and break it down, basically, so they could get to their moms. And the little girls, most of them made maybe like one attempt at smacking it and then sat down and cried. And it was sort of, it was, in some ways you want to go, oh, little girls, you've got to be more active, you've got to go after it. But on the other hand, what they did was highly effective because the mothers immediately went to them. The mothers were willing to stand there and kind of laugh and watch their little boys try to break down the plexiglass but when their little girls showed this distress, they immediately went over and picked them up. So I think that was a really good example of showing how early this is socialized. Both groups of children were trying to get the result that they wanted, which was maternal attention and access and interaction with the tools that they knew how to do that. So the boys had their the mother's attention by trying to get through it and being rewarded for that behavior, like, oh, look how brave he is, look how strong he is. And the girls got it by showing need and showing dependency. That is fascinating. Do you think that stereotyping children based on their sex and socializing them based on these sex roles is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy? Uh, yeah, I definitely do. I think I think it's incredibly hard for any of us to really know what or who we would be outside of the strictures of patriarchy and outside of this socialization process. I think it's just so embedded, and it's so many, many generations of it, it's hard to say. But I do think most children, I mean, there's always outliers, but the vast majority of children were born into the world, and we need, we biologically need to be able to connect with our caregivers, with whoever's in charge, whoever has the resources. Any animal does. You know, you have to be able to somehow please the ones with the resources enough to get food and physical contact and protection and care. So we adhere to these roles that we are told we're supposed to embody as best we can. 
because it's what we do for survival. And then as we get older, the survival starts looking a little bit different, and it's more about approval and popularity and do your parents think you're the shining star or are you constantly the thorn in their sides, you know, like how well are you adhering to the role that you're given to play? And, of course, that does depend somewhat on particular family structures and cultures. But in general, I think children definitely do the best they can to play out whatever role they're given. And your personality, everyone's personality, does start developing around that. It starts extinguishing the pieces that are considered unappealing or unacceptable, and it puts preference on the ones that are desired. So, yeah, I think in a huge way, sexism and patriarchy shapes who we are and who we continue to turn into being. Clearly, these conversations should be held between young children and adults. Who do you think is responsible for initiating these conversations? My audience and my cultural group here that I'm talking to is teachers. I think parents are certainly responsible, but I guess not being a parent myself, I don't know how I would recommend initiating that. I I feel like the parent-child relationship is different than the center-teacher-child relationship. You know, you read about in anti-bias, you know, anti-racial bias curriculum education that there's so many cases of children saying things that are racially offensive or saying things that are that show bias and their parents are appalled and they don't know how they, well, we don't talk like that. We don't know how they got it. Well, it's everywhere. There's a vacuum there, and if you're not addressing it, then they're just going to be filled by the broader culture. So I think certainly we've seen with exquisite clarity over the past few years that sexism is everywhere. It's endemic. It's part of the fabric of the patriarchal culture that we all are stewing in right now and have been for a very long time. So I think it's a responsibility of teachers or anyone really that has contact with young children to address it and not just let it be silent and not just hope if we don't mention it, it'll go away or the sexism equivalent if children don't see color, which is ridiculous because of course they do. And of course they understand the implications even if you're not saying things outright. So yeah, I think definitely it's important to address and to try to in developmentally appropriate ways as much as possible to kind of reset that balance. And part of that, I think, really is just, not just because it's hard, but introducing children to really intentional critical thinking techniques to be able to really reflect on what they're thinking and how they got there and does this make sense or not. Because I think that's a big piece that's missing for a lot of, well, adults certainly, and also for a lot of children, that, that process of being taught to do that. A little while ago, you mentioned creating equitable learning environments, but how is that different from equality? And also, what does that look like? What does an equitable learning environment look like? Well, I think an equitable learning environment is going to look different depending on the circumstances. Um, Equality, I think when we talk about equality, we're looking at basically the idea that everybody gets the same thing, which is fair in the five-year-old sense, but is not always equitable because not everybody needs the same thing. I spent a number of years working in inclusive classrooms with children with disabilities and typically developing children, and that was a real experience in trying to create an equitable environment because not all children need the same thing. Some kids had to have different rules based on their capacity and where they were in their developmental journey right then. So I think looking at a feminist approach is kind of similar. So you come to it with the understanding that in the larger culture, in the environment, you know, the patriarchal environment, girls are going to be faced with these 
challenges, for lack of a better word. You know, girls are going to be at these disadvantages, so you try to make up for it in the classroom in really intentional ways. Another study that was, you might have heard of this when it was just a couple of years ago, is about college classrooms, undergraduate classrooms, where they were measuring the amount of time that male students spoke versus female students spoke, and then also everyone's perception of how much each sex spoke. Nobody estimated it correctly, basically. Um, the male students tended to dominate the conversations, the discussions, by a pretty significant margin, and everybody was more or less agreeing it was equal. And then in the cases where female students were speaking more, or not, not more than the men, but um, about when it was about a 50-50 split, when the female students were speaking more than typical, the male students saw it as being very dominated by the female students. So they saw that almost 50-50 as being hugely dominated by the women. So I think that happens because it's something that we're not used to seeing. And I think it's the same thing in early childhood. I mean, there's studies that show that by kindergarten, boys are called on more in class, they're volunteering more, they're talking more, they're more comfortable speaking out, and girls are already starting to be more quiet and more passive. So trying to take steps to really encourage leadership roles for little girls, really active roles, valuing what they say, encouraging them to speak out. I think there's lots of things that teachers can do to try to create equity, and I think a lot of it is going to look like supporting girls in ways that they're not usually supported because, again, it's a tough environment. I mean, early childhood is a tough environment. The resources are really stretched thin, and so much of random teachers' time is taken up just trying to get through the day and deal with behavioral issues. And a lot of the students with behavioral issues tend to be boys for lots of reasons, some of which have to do with the structure of the environment not being great for boys often, and the fact that boys tend to act out or demonstrate their behavioral issues in more active, disruptive ways, and girls with behavioral issues not always, of course, but tend to do them kind of more internally and in smaller, less disruptive ways. I guess less disruptive would be the way to say that. So often, and you'll and you'll hear this talking to teachers regularly, that there's always a couple of boys, there's always those boys that take up all your time and they just won't listen and that are disrupting it for everybody. And occasionally it's a girl, but that's much more rare. So trying to have a more equitable environment in those circumstances would really look like spending a lot more time on girls and encouraging girls and having girls speak and things like that than is usually the norm because so much of your time is taken up with just trying to manage behavioral issues. And some of this is also related to classroom management in general, but yeah, a lot of teachers end up defaulting to just, if the girls are well-behaved and they're quiet, just let them go. There's not time in the day to try to deal with everybody. So, you, you know, you try to keep the behavioral issues at a minimum, and the girls are not often that, so they don't get the attention and the focus. Is there anything else that you'd like to add for our listeners who are mostly lesbian radical feminists? Well, I guess I would say that I think lesbian radical feminists can be an extremely good resource for early childhood in terms of debunking some stereotypes or at least casting doubt on some stereotypes. I know for myself, being a radical lesbian feminist in a classroom, it was a good genesis for conversation with some kids. There were a number of kids over the years who asked if I was a boy or a girl and who wanted to get into like these long discussions about if I was a boy or a girl. And... I mean, I would answer them, certainly, but it was a good opportunity to say, well, what do girls look like? What makes a girl? Why would I be a boy? And starting those conversations. And I think in some ways lesbians 
particularly lesbian feminists, are in a unique position to do this. So it would probably be too much to hope for a massive influx of radical lesbian feminists into the early childhood workforce, but I think it could be super useful there. <laughs> and I think there could be a really good chance to bring a different perspective that's not really happening right now. I think so much of the mainstream gay and lesbian focus in the past few years has been about gay marriage and getting that legalized, and that was a huge coup, of course. And it also didn't really do anything to interrogate or question the fundamental rightness or wrongness of the nuclear family by just sort of agreeing to that bandwagon rather than questioning it. So I've been a little bit disappointed in that piece of the movement rather than questioning whether this is actually a good thing for children or women, whether this is actually a, a reasonable structure. I think if you're a radical lesbian feminist and you have any sort of interest in going into early childhood, it's a good time. It's a good field. <laughs> you can have a lot of influence. And they will ask if you're a boy, and it's okay. There was a one child in particular for who I had for a year that was very insistent that I was a boy the whole time, and it made it was it was so funny to me and how uncomfortable it made the other teachers. I mean, it was just it was I didn't particularly care. It wasn't a huge deal to me that he kept saying I was a boy, but these other teachers would gloom over him and go, "She's a girl. Say she's a girl. Say she's a girl." <laughs> I was like, "Okay," and finally, and he was a um, he was a headstrong little friend. And he eventually decided I was a boy girl, and that was enough to appease them at the time. But I think we do, just by being who we are, we bring up a lot of questions and a lot of opportunities for growth and expansion for young children. Thank you so, so much for sharing your insight and your experiences with your students. It's really enlightening. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's it's great to be able to talk about this because feminism and early childhood I'm very passionate about and they don't seem to come together as often as I'd like. 